Hi everyone, I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor at Wired, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I am joined by co-hosts Ariel Pardes, Senior Associate Editor at Wired. Hello! And Lauren Good, Senior Writer at Wired. Hello! On today's show, we're going to be talking about Twitter, the good, the bad, the recent redesign. Ariel here had a great exclusive story on Wired.com earlier this week about Twitter's attempt to, as she put it, build a community garden in the middle of what some feel has become a toxic swamp. That's right. I have been spending uh, the past couple of weeks hanging out at Twitter, talking to their design team, talking to some of the co-founders. Um, and just a quick spoiler, the redesign does not include an edit button. Boo. But there's plenty more to talk about, and we will get into all of it on today's show. Yes, and before we talk about Twitter, let's get into the news. And Ariel, why don't you go first? Happily. So if it feels like you've aged about 50 years this week, don't panic. It's not the state of the news. It's not the impending threat of climate change and nuclear war. It's an app called FaceApp. You've likely seen some photos making the rounds this week from FaceApp, which uses some clever AI to make people look old. Uh, The way it works is that you download this app, you upload a photo, it adds some carefully placed wrinkles and jowls and gray hairs to make the people in the photo look geriatric. It's kind of weird. I saw a really creepy one where someone did this to her child who was of elementary school age, and the result was frightening. Um, But of course, as soon as millions of people have uploaded photos of their faces to this app, the privacy bells start ringing. Because remember, we've been here before, not once, not twice, but every time an app encourages us to upload our personal photos to its service, people start to say, wait a minute, where are those photos going? Right. I remember this happened with the Me Too app. Mm. Me Too spelled M-E-I-T-U, different from the Me Too movement. (laughs) And there were concerns because of the invasive permissions requests that they were asking. And the thing about FaceApp is that it itself is actually not new, right? They've done this before. Yeah, That's right. There was actually a scandal about this back in 2017 when this app first made the rounds. Um, People were uploading pictures of themselves. They were making themselves look old, among other things. I think you could also change a photo to make somebody smile, which is creepy. So what can these companies do with the photos you send them? Well, whatever they want. They can build out facial recognition databases. They can sell those photos to bigger companies. FaceApp's terms of service says that it includes a, quote, perpetual, irrevocable, non-exclusive, royalty-free, worldwide, fully paid, transferable, sub-licensable license to use, reproduce, modify, adapt, publish, translate, create derivative works from, distribute, publicly perform, and display your user content and name. So that's concerning. (laughs) (laughs) They own you, basically. They do. They do. Own your face. And what do you get in exchange for this? Well, you get a photo of yourself looking old. Yeah, lols. So, I mean, we've been through this time and time again. I remember hearing similar outrage when Google had their app that Google would let you upload a photo and then compare yourself to a work of art. And, of course, what does Google do with those photos? Well, whatever they want. Um, So I think it's just something to keep in mind as these things continue to pop up. Our colleague Brian Barrett made a great point this week in a Wired story where he pointed out that, like, yes, this is something to be concerned about, but it's it's also something that we need to be more aware of in all of our daily activities online, including services like Facebook, which also have incredibly liberal licensing agreements 
and own lots of your personal photos as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems like there were a lot of initial concerns about the fact that this company is based in St. Petersburg, Russia. And so just the early reactions, maybe perhaps not very well thought out, were, oh my goodness, this is coming from a foreign country and a foreign entity and one that's been you know, known for interference in some of our democratic initiatives before. And so we should be very concerned about this when in reality, um, there are plenty of homegrown apps here in the United States and elsewhere that just have similarly invasive um, permissions requests and um, overarching policies around what they can do with your data. And that's the thing we actually need to be worried about. Not necessarily it's the geography of where the app's being developed. Right. And we should note that while FaceApp is a company that is based in Russia, their servers are actually hosted in the United States. So if your concern is that these things are getting circulated to the Russian government, well, I don't know. Perhaps that's true, but it appears not to be. Your concern should be about the advancement of time that causes aging on your body. (laughs) Wear sunscreen, folks. (laughs) Right. And stay off Twitter. That'll age you. Oh, seriously. Uh, Well, if you spent any time at all poking around uh, the internet at the beginning of this week and you were not looking at FaceApp posts, then you were most certainly made aware in one way or another of Prime Day The shopping holiday of Amazon's invention spanned two full days this year, Monday, July 15th and Tuesday, July 16th. During those two days, the company encouraged people to sign up for Amazon Prime if they hadn't already so they could take advantage of steep deals on everything from home electronics to pants and socks and stuffed animals. Now, we're probably never going to know exactly how much money Amazon made from Prime Day or how many people signed up for Amazon Prime so that they could access the savings because Amazon doesn't often release hard numbers about its business. In fact, they almost never release hard numbers about any part of their business. However, we do know a few things. Um, First of all, Prime Day was still as huge as ever and much bigger than ever, and not just for Amazon. There were something like 230, 240 other retailers that also held their own competing sales events like like Walmart and Target and Best Buy, like basically any big retailer you can think of countered Amazon's programming with their own programming, which was pretty cool because as we all know, there are a lot of people who are very upset with Amazon because of their poor labor track record. And that's another thing that Prime Day really exposed to us is it really brought to light a lot of um, the, the poor the poor track record that Amazon has been exhibiting over the last few years uh, in its warehouse workers and the people who deliver the packages to your home. Uh, In fact, during Prime Day, there was a walkout staged at an Amazon warehouse in Shakopee, Minnesota, which is near Minneapolis. Uh, There were over 100 employees that stopped working for six hours on Monday in protest of poor working conditions. And one of the big things that they were protesting was something that Amazon calls speed quotas, which uh, dictate how quickly the people pull things off of the shelves and put them into the packaging queue. Uh, And if they are too slow, they get fired. Uh, If they take uh, more than a certain number of hours off unpaid, they get fired. You know, they it's basically unless you're working yourself to the bone, it's very easy to lose your job if you're working in an Amazon warehouse. Um, that is the that is the main thing that they were trying to draw attention to. And it is also the thing that almost stole the news cycle away from Prime Day deals themselves. Um, I don't know. I, I, just looking at the news on Monday and Tuesday, I saw a lot more people talking about boycotting Amazon, talking about buying nothing on Prime Day, more so than people talking about some sick deal that they got on like a toaster. 
Totally. Yeah, I would love to see some numbers, and perhaps this is something we could even do, of the average discount that was really offered because sometimes the deals don't seem all of that, you know, all that great. I think generally the concept of Prime Day is brilliant for Amazon. If you think about it, we're about halfway through the year. We're not yet at the holiday season. It's post-Mother's Day, post-Father's Day, but we're not yet entered into the back-to-school season. People are generally taking summer vacation. Perhaps buying online is not their primary you know, concern right now. So Amazon has launched Prime Day at a time of year when people – uh, like maybe aren't thinking about shopping quite as much and yet they put shopping right at the forefront of people's mind mm-hmm. and to your point not it's not just for Amazon it's for it's for retailers like Walmart and Target too who this ends up being a boon for that said I didn't buy anything I was like I just kind of checked out of it and uh didn't see anything that really jumped out at me Ariel I know you had a different experience though <sighs> I feel tremendous <laughs> shame recounting this story but I was one of those people who was like Amazon is kind of messed up. Um, I want to support these people who are protesting their labor practices. And more importantly, this is a holiday invented by the richest man on earth to promote his capitalist agenda. And I want no part in that. But then I saw a deal. (laughs) I had been in the market for a blender and I had asked for some advice from our brilliant kitchen gadget reviewer joe ray he is like the best in the business and he said listen you know you could get a cheaper blender but i really recommend getting a vitamix and just waiting for one to go on sale and i hemmed and i hawed because they never go on sale and lo and behold i get a text from joe ray that says this vitamix is discounted 40 percent off reader i bought it (laughs) have you used it yet no it just arrived oh boy i can't wait uh, what are you going to make with it? Uh, smoothies, milkshakes, my own almond butter. I don't know. <laughs> the first thought I had was, are you going to bring the almond butter in for us to use? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike, I have a question for you. Yes. How much do you think Prime Day actually matters for Amazon? Um. I, well, uh, it's... It's hard to know uh, because it's one of those companies that is kind of inscrutable from the outside. But, um, you know, it's a huge marketing event for them. Everybody's talking about Prime Day. Of course, Amazon wants everybody to be talking about deals and signing up for Prime. Um, Basically, if they get more people to sign up for Amazon Prime, they win. And I think that they most certainly do because the only way to access these deals is to become a Prime member. And, you know, a lot of people point out that like Prime membership is, is I was like $130, $140 a year. Mm-hmm. And if you sign up for it, just the deals that you can get on Prime Day alone are enough for it to make sense for you financially to sign up. So I think as long as that argument is out there and as long as that math works out in consumers' favor, Amazon is going to get more people to sign up for Prime. Once you signed up for Prime, They've got you and you're a customer and you're going to use them more frequently or you're going to watch their videos and you're going to get served advertisements. Um, so, yes, I think it's still a big deal for them. And it's still one of the most important um, weeks of the year for them. Just for it's that their reason. membership drive. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, um, Lauren, why don't you tell us about uh, this week in Elon? I was going to say your answer was much more nuanced than me being a crab ass and being like, people aren't shopping right now. <laughs> <laughs> They're by the pool. But you're totally right. I mean, not all of us. Prime. Not all of us were uh, enjoying a Parisian getaway in the lead up to Prime, Lauren. <laughs> I was not thinking about buying dongles and gadgets. I can tell you that. I bought a bath mat. 
see, I mean, that's useful. It wasn't even. It wasn't even a Prime Day deal. I just had to buy it. Oh, oh, it was. <sighs> nope. I was see? told. I was told there better be a new bath mat in the bath when in the bath when I get home. And I said, oh. okay. Oh. <laughs> and, I, and I bought a new bath mat. <laughs> see, that's one of those unsexy items that you know. After a while, like you're glad you bought it. To me, that's like the uh, the strip, the electrical strip that you buy, like. Because you have too many gadgets lying around. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I never think to buy them. And when I do, I'm so glad I bought one. Let's talk about Elon Musk. Because it's always fun to talk about Elon Musk. And this time, the man wants to put a computer in your brain. This past Tuesday night at a presentation at the California Academy of Sciences, Elon Musk announced the first initiative from his company called Neuralink. And guys, it's going to blow your mind. Get it? Yeah. Okay. It's a, <laughs> here's what it is. It's a tiny computer chip that Musk envisions will be stitched to our brains by a robot. Adam Rogers, our colleague at Wired, covered this for us, and he has all of the details. Adam writes that the chip is custom built to receive and process the electrical action potentials that signal activity in the neurons in your brain. Then the chip is connected to wires that embed into your brain tissues and receive these spikes. And a robotic sewing machine is what puts those wires there with quote-unquote enviable precision. So what is this actually supposed to do? Basically, it would turn your brain's activity into machine-readable code that a computer can understand. And when you think about it, there are lots of noble or helpful ways in which this could be used, as Adam points out, um, even if this does seem like the neural lace of science fiction nightmares. Uh, like you could, I don't know, something like this could help a blind person see or it could help a person control their prosthetic from their mind. The thing is, though, that this is going to inevitably take a while. Musk says he hopes to have this in a human patient by the end of next year. Lots of tests are going to happen first. Other companies like Facebook have been working on some kind of mind reading technology. DARPA has been funding brain-computer interface research since the 1970s. Um, now, Adam does point out that the Neuralink product revealed by Musk does take this in a seemingly different technical direction in some way, but I think it's safe to say it might still be a while before we see some effort like this come to fruition. Yeah, and this estimation that he's going to have this in, in human clinical trials within the next year seems completely bogus. Yeah, completely. Um, yeah. It was interesting to see at this event... Elon announced that they had begun work in primate studies, and this seemed to not just surprise the audience, but in fact his team, <laughs> who seemed a bit like, whoa, uh, were we supposed to talk about that? Um, because up until this point, they've done some some studies in rodents, which you know any science reporter will tell you doesn't really show a lot about efficacy or safety. Um, so it seems like the the timeline of the trials is very, very off. But what I find so interesting about Neuralink is that, like many other... Uh, brain-computer interface startups, Elon's idea is that this isn't ultimately for people who are dealing with brain injuries, right? He, he has this idea that originally it will be used for people who have paralysis or perhaps people who are quadriplegics to sort of connect parts of their brains that have become disconnected from the rest of their body. But ultimately, he sees this as a way to make us superhuman, a way to tap into the brain as like a human API and <laughs> connect us with our devices around us. And that just seems like a very Elon Musk idea, right? Yeah, it's I'm, totally Muskian. We're yeah. going to Mars. Uh, yeah. Our brains will be connected to the computers and our cars will fly. Yeah. And the problem with that argument, and it's something that Adam does a very good job of pointing out uh, in his story, which everybody should absolutely read if you're interested in Neuralink. The problem with that argument is that like anybody who looks at a device like this and extrapolates that that is what it is going to be able to do uh, does not understand how the human brain works because 
nobody understands how the human brain works. Like we know where the outputs are, but we don't know where the inputs are. So to be able to make the brain do something that the brain does not already want to do is still like a huge mystery. And that's not the type of research that these guys are doing. So it's going to be able to help the brain make connections that it previously could not make, but it's not going to be you like, you're not going to be able to insert thoughts into people's head or have telepathic conversations. One of the things that, <laughs> that Elon Musk actually said during the press conference this week was, oh, if two people have Neuralinks, they'll be able to have telepathic conversations. Consensual telepathic conversations, yes, consensual. we should note. <laughs> consensual. Anyway, bonkers, but still, you know, kind of interesting that, you know, the billionaires of the world are spending their money, not necessarily on toys, but things that might prove to be helpful. Yes. Yes. Let's hope. Or the stuff of science fiction nightmares. <laughs> All right. So at this point, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, Ariel, we're going to grill you about everything new that's happening in the world of Twitter and their website redesign. Ariel, you've been spending a lot of time inside Twitter lately reporting on how the company is reinventing how the website looks to the outside world. They say they're doing this in an attempt to improve the overall user experience, and it's the first major redesign of Twitter in years. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so this is the first web redesign in seven years, which in, in Twitter time is like 100 years. <laughs> um, but this actually began not as a design project and more like an engineering project. The web technology stack had not been updated in like almost a decade. And so it was becoming really hard for Twitter engineers to build new features, to make improvements, or to add things to the website that they'd already added to the mobile site. So a couple years ago, some engineers at Twitter were like, hey, can we maybe work on fixing this? The design team got involved. It became a nice little internal project. And then along the way, some product folks and design folks said, it might be time to make this more of like a proper visual refresh for our community. And that really dovetailed nicely with some other things that Twitter was talking about. Um, this was in 2017 when the project sort of first began, or the idea of a redesign first began. And around 2017, um, a lot of interesting things are happening at Twitter, right? You're seeing the rise of political Twitter, right? Like, at real Donald Trump has made Twitter a really big destination all of a sudden. Um, and in part because of that, you're seeing a lot of sort of squabbling and infighting and uh, trolling happening on the platform. And you're starting to see Twitter respond to this at a sort of policy level where they're saying, okay, what is Twitter really for? How do people need to use it? How do we make this experience more conversational, more pleasant, more productive? Um, and, and one of the ways that they're trying to do that is with design. So ergo, the redesign. What are some of the most significant changes we've seen with this redesign? Yeah, so I made a list of them actually. It's a bunch of little things. So when I first saw it, I thought, hmm, this doesn't seem drastically different. Um, and that is very intentional. They've done a lot of very small incremental changes. So the, the first thing you'll notice is that they've changed the design to where it's now three columns. On the right, you're going to see all your navigation icons, which were previously at the top. So things like your tab for direct messages, your tab to get to your lists, um, the tab to get to your profile. Like that's all nicely collated in the left side column now. And the right column is devoted entirely to search and explore. So this is something that Twitter has been trying to emphasize for a long time. People come to Twitter 
in some cases to follow their friends or to like see what their colleagues are up to but in a lot of cases people are coming to discover new things and like connect with communities and people that they maybe don't connect with offline so they've made search and explore much more prominent and then in the middle they've devoted that to your tweets and your um, compose box which is now a little bit easier to compose tweets in some other quick things that they've done, um, they've added dark mode, which was on the mobile app, but not on the website. They've allowed you to customize some things like the size of the text and your accent color. Um, they've added this feature called Swish, which allows you to switch between chronological order and the algorithmic order, which wasn't on the website before. And this is great. <laughs> People mm -hmm. love that. Um, They've also like added a couple other things. Like they noticed that a lot of their users in Japan had multiple accounts and were trying to switch between these accounts all the time, but there was no easy way to do that on Twitter. So they've added multi-account support, um, which now makes it much easier to use Twitter in that way if that's how you use Twitter. Okay, that sounds great, but what about the edit button? Yeah, what about <laughs> the edit button? Yeah, that's that's a, that's not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, one of one of the things I discovered reporting this story that I think anyone who's ever been on Twitter has experienced is that Twitter. There's something very frustrating about talking to people who work at Twitter who are so earnest and love the product and really want to make a good experience, but seem very limited in how they can do that. And one one of the, the things that keeps coming up is like, Twitter users really want an edit button. They really want stronger policies around harassment and hate speech. They really want products that make it easier to have a cohesive conversation with a bunch of different people. And instead of delivering those things, Twitter says, ooh, but what if you could change your accent color? <laughs> ooh, but what if you could switch between your accounts? And people are like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. But like, th that's not what we asked for. Yeah, there is there is this weird sort of dissonance between like the, the absolutely uh, objectively problematic things about Twitter and the things that they keep concentrating on. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, they have made some some strides towards that in recent weeks, right? There was the uh, the change uh, that they made recently to their policy that uh, if there is a public figure who has said something that's inaccurate on Twitter, that they would attach a little flag to it saying that it's inaccurate. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, just a couple days ago, Twitter also changed its policy to say that um, if you are, I think it's if you're a verified user, you can uh, mute comments below a tweet. So if you tweet something that is inaccurate, you can then silence the people who are pointing out the inaccuracy. Cool, cool. Yeah. So it's like there's all of these weird things that keep happening that aren't necessarily addressing the issue. It feels like they're making a decision that they think is going to help address the issue and it just ends up not. Ariel, I'm curious with the people who you spoke to at Twitter and people who seem like they do want to affect more change to the platform, what is preventing them from doing it? Is it Jack Dorsey uh, at the top of Twitter? <laughs> is it something else or someone else? Like I'm wondering how that hierarchy kind of exists in Twitter between the design team and the people who are ultimately making the decisions. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and it's hard to get a straight answer on that, right? Because no one at Twitter on the design team or elsewhere is gonna say, like, you know, on the low, we all really want the edit button too, but Uncle Jack won't let us have it. And I don't think that's how it probably hashes out anyway. The answer I kept hearing over and over is that Twitter is trying to turn a corner 
where it's doing things differently, it's a little more grown up, and it's trying to be mindful about the changes that it's releasing. So it's experimenting a little bit more. And I think some of these policies around, you know, hiding comments or like flagging certain tweets, those are all examples of experiments that like might not last, Mm. but they're sort of Twitter throwing something out there and seeing what happens. Um, And their approach seems to be yeah, that, that they are interested in things like an edit button. They are interested in things like hiding metrics, but they want to be really thoughtful about how they're releasing those. And something I kept hearing over and over about the redesign is that it represents this sort of big sea change in the way that Twitter can release those things because now the technology stack is a little more modern. The visual components are all aligned a little bit better and everyone is sort of on the same page about where they think Twitter is headed. Personally, I think Twitter is going through a bit of an existential crisis, and I think it's been going through an existential crisis for almost as long as it's existed. So one of the things that the design team has been responsible for is showing the world what Twitter is and who it's for and how people are supposed to use it. And the way that they've made design decisions has really changed the answer to those questions over time, right? So there's a period when Twitter was all about the news and they were making it really prominent where you could find news and who you could follow, who was related to the news. Then they scrapped that. They said, no, Twitter is about finding events. So they made that really prominent. Then they've changed their mind and said, like, no, Twitter is about your family and your friends. Like, no, Twitter is about uh, the people you're not really friends with in real life, but you're friends with on the internet. And now their new answer to this is that Twitter is about conversations which is so abstract and has so many different meanings that it feels like they haven't quite honed in on how they want to present themselves and and how to translate that in a way that's communicable to its users. Yeah, it, it you know, it feels like like trying to battle forest fires in California, hmm. like watching them try to maintain Twitter. I mean, if you go all the way back to what was probably their first scandal when they were growing exponentially in like 2008, 2009, their whole thing was people just didn't understand what it was. So part of what they were doing for the onboarding was they were giving you suggested users, right? People that you should follow. Hmm. Because if you follow these people, you'll get a very good sense of what Twitter is. So they were handpicking people to follow. And of course, when you have a bunch of, you know, 20 something male engineers in an office in San Francisco picking who, you know, are the people to amplify on the platform, you're going to alienate a lot of people. You're going to make people get the wrong idea about the platform who don't share your views, right? This was a huge problem because the suggested users list, they called it. Remember that? Yeah. I was just going to, sorry to interrupt. No, no. I was just going to say, also, a lot of the people they were suggesting you follow were Twitter employees. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much <laughs> yeah. so. Putting themselves on there. And if you got onto the suggested users list, it was like, oh, sweet, I'm on the suggested users list. And then all of a sudden people would start yelling at you and you're like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they've always sort of had that weird crisis of identity. And now for them to just say, like, we're about conversations. That's what they should have been saying all along. And they should have been looking at f- building in features that could foster conversation, things that make conversation easier, make it, you know, make less friction towards reaching out to somebody, asking a question, getting an answer, and having that come through all the noise in a clear way. Yeah. I think it's too soon to see, like, how they hone that identity and if they're successful. Um, And I think a redesign is a very small piece of that and certainly not the entire picture. But I do think it's worth mentioning that they've been on this conversation push for a long time now. Mm -hmm. Um, Almost as long as they've been working on the redesign, they've been 
tooling with this idea called Healthy Conversations, which is an entire team at Twitter who does product and engineering and design um, and is sort of experimenting with what it means to have healthy conversations. Again, I think a lot of the work out of that team has been a little abstract. Um, But I, I do think that talking to the people there, there is a sense that everyone is trying to figure out what this means. And they're at least united in this idea of what Twitter is in 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is perhaps cause for hope. Yeah, that's good. Self-awareness is always good. (laughs) How do each of you feel about Twitter in general right now? How do you feel when you're on it? Weird. The redesign has made it weirder. Why is that? well, okay, so for me, Twitter has always been uh, a news fire hose, right? It's always been it just basically like an RSS feed of everything that's happening on the internet. That's the way I've always viewed it, right? The redesign makes it feel less like that. Um, I think something about having everything be bigger in this three-column layout in the browser makes it so that I can't scan as many tweets with my eyes vertically as I used to be able to. So it feels like I'm having to scroll a lot more and it's harder to consume as much information at the same time with the new redesign, I feel like. Um, The other thing about the swish that I really don't like, Mm -hmm. uh, sorry. Uh, (laughs) um, It's honestly like the redesign has really changed a, a lot about how I feel about Twitter. So um, in the in the redesign, there are two options. This is, it's just like this in the mobile app right now. There are two options for how you order your feed, and it's a it's a, a selectable um, drop down at the top of the screen. One is called Home. The other is called Most Recent Tweets. Right. So Home is the algorithmic ordering. It's basically the things that see the most engagement show up at the top, just like a Facebook feed, just like an Instagram feed. It's it's that type of arrangement for it, right? Most recent tweets is OG Twitter. It's like exactly what it says, mm-hmm. right? You see the most recent, like five seconds ago, nine seconds ago, 17 seconds ago, in order, reverse cron order, going down the page. So that is my preferred method for consuming Twitter. A lot of people who I know who are on Twitter all day, other journalists mostly, they consume Twitter the same way. Now, if I close my tab at the end of the day and then I reopen the tab tomorrow, it resets back to home view, the algorithmic view. It doesn't hold your chosen view as a user preference in any way if you close the tab, which I think is really bad. And when you do that drop down, there's a little link for see your feed settings to customize how you see your feed. You click mm-hmm. on that link and you go through the menu tree to try and find the checkbox that says, always show me recent tweets first. That checkbox does not exist. At least I have not been able to find it. And I spent seriously 20 minutes yesterday looking for it. I'm looking for it right now. And you're right. It doesn't exist. I don't so see it. it keeps pushing you back to the algorithmic view. The yes. app does this too, but the app only does it when you like update the app. So if you have your app set to auto update, Every two weeks or so, you'll open Twitter and you'll be like, what the hell's going on in my Twitter feed? Why is it all jacked? Right. Oh, it's because it switched back to the algorithmic view because right. the app updated. So something is from like 22 hours ago, but was really popular instead yeah. of showing you whatever you just opened on at that moment. Yes. Right. The most so recent. for yeah. people who prefer to not have the al- algorithm put things out of order and prefer to see them in the order in which they arrived, that's a big problem. Uh, and for me, it's made... It's made uh, using Twitter more frustrating and more distracting because I'm always looking at the top of the screen to wonder if it's switched back to the algorithmic mm-hmm. view or not. Mm-hmm. And that would be a really easy thing to build in that would just give people like a little bit more customization of their experience. Amen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about this a lot with the, the metrics thing, which is 
to be clear, not a part of the redesign, but um, <laughs> something that people have been asking for for a really long time and Jack Dorsey has acknowledged is a good idea, which is getting rid of some of the metrics around likes, retweets, followers, stuff like that. Um, I demetricated my Twitter using a browser extension last year and it's delightful. It is damn delightful. And every time I use Twitter on my phone where I don't have this extension plugged in, I feel worse. And it feels like one of those things that wouldn't be that hard for Twitter to let you opt into. Like, I understand that maybe there are reasons for keeping that for everyone, but like, it just feels like not that, not that big of a deal to say like, would you like to hide the numbers? Like, please check this box. Mm -hmm. And then it could just do it. Why? Huh. The, The metrics are important to me. Especially yeah. if I'm going to retweet something. If something's already been retweeted like 8,000 times, I'm not going to retweet it. See, you've been manipulated by social media if you feel that way. I have been. But I, Your but brain I wonder, has been changed. They, so they probably are concerned about taking away the incentive-based elements of Twitter if you do that. That yes. someone is less Good. likely. Someone's <laughs> not going to get the, you know, if it's like asking someone to post on Instagram or Facebook if they're not going to get a like and get that dopamine hit. And then well, therefore you have, you're, you're not less informed in some ways of how people are engaging with your content. We should note that Adam Masseri, who runs Instagram, has already demetricated Instagram, not in the US, but in many of their big mm-hmm. markets. Um, so it's not impossible. They could they could do it. Right. It's very much a choice um, is, is sort of how I feel about it. Like, it's very much a choice that these technology companies could be making if they thought that it was good for their users. And Lauren, I think you've hit on exactly the right thing, which is that the choices aren't always made because they're good for the users. They're made for, because they're good for the company. Oh, right. I mean, as with all tech companies, blanket statement, right? <laughs> Most of the time they're doing it because it's good for the company. Um, to reference Ariel's um, earlier mention of our capitalistic society. But um, my biggest gripe with the new redesign is that it feels like a web app. It feels like a desktop app in a web, in a mm. web browser. Yeah. And um, I kind of liked the gritty, um, potentially unpolished, unfinished website element of old Twitter. Um, And then I have some small quibbles too. Like I don't like now where they put the copy link to tweet. I think it's at the bottom now. It's the top. And that's really, so they move it to the share arrow instead of the top drop down. Um, I don't like that the right tweet button, as in right um, W-R-I-T-E, to create a tweet, is all the way down at the bottom left now. I feel like that should be near the top. Uh, oh, it is near the top, though. There's the What's Happening box. Yeah, you can just start typing in oh, there and then fire off. Oh, look and at that. one of the cool things about this. I take it back. Now it's easier to compose a tweet um, without leaving your feed. That is true. That's true. Okay, now that you've pointed that out, I'm really glad this is a good this is a good new Twitter new Twitter workshop <laughs> yeah. for sure. Um, well, yeah. I think uh, something that I think we're sort of touching on here that is something Twitter and every other big company has to deal with when they issue a redesign is like how much is change aversion and how much is people genuinely disliking what you've rolled out. And I think with Twitter, this has been a big question um it's taken them two years to issue this web redesign and along the way they've tried to be really mindful of how users are going to react so they've sort of 
sent out these little experiments along the way. So a certain portion of users were enrolled in an experiment that showed what it would look like if the search bar were put in a different spot. And then they like watched what people did. And they had this survey where you could send Twitter designers your feedback. And Twitter's design team told me that they got over 200,000 submissions that they read personally and tried their best to incorporate into how they designed this. Now, I think... I think that falls on deaf ears a lot of times. Like, I personally got a lot of tweets after this story saying it's a lie that Twitter designers were open to feedback. It's a lie. They didn't listen to me. I hate this. Yeah. Change it back. And I understand that, you know, some people feel that way. But I, I think the team is trying to be really mindful of making that distinction between, like, where are the things where people have genuine complaints that can be addressed? And where are the cases where people just are adverse to change? And, and are uncomfortable because something is in a different spot now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's uh, ev- every company goes through that whenever they make a radical redesign. Unfortunately, um, you can't make everybody happy. No, you can't. <laughs> Especially not on Twitter. Especially not on Twitter. Well, look, we have to wrap up this conversation. Um, but thank you for telling us all about Twitter's new website redesign. How can people see it? Well, you can see it by logging onto Twitter.com. And if you haven't already been enrolled in the new design, you will likely see something on um, either the right or the left column that says we have a new design. Take a look or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. See the next version of Twitter Mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then you click on a big blue button. And then you're in it. And it reloads. Um, All right. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll uh, drill down into some recommendations. It's time for recommendations. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, we recommend, in addition to spending some time on the new Twitter app, uh, what are we recommending this week? Ariel, why don't you start? Sure. I would like to recommend an excellent resource for when you feel a little bit out of the loop. It is a Reddit community called r slash out of the loop. And I discovered this last week when I logged onto Reddit and I started seeing a bunch of memes about aliens. And I was like, what? (laughs) And they were, like, from so many different communities that I couldn't figure out what was tying them all together. There were, like, aliens showing up in your bedroom late at night. There were, like, aliens at strip clubs. Very confusing. So I went to r slash out of the loop, and sure enough, there was a post that was like, hey, what are all these alien memes? And then it linked to a bunch of helpful resources about why Area 51 was in the news. This Um, is fantastic. Today, here are some things that are on the front page of r slash out of the loop. What's up with the face app craze? What's up with Janelle Eliana? I don't even know who that is. What's up with people talking about Scarlett Johansson being a tree? What is going on with Justin Trudeau? <laughs> Evergreen question. What's going on with the Hawaiian protesters? Like, I don't know what any of these things are, and I can't wait to learn. Oh, wow. And then you'll be in the loop. And then you'll be in the loop. It's, it's a fun resource. I mean, these ones feel like a little bit um, meme but often they're news things where something will be circulating in the news, and maybe you don't know what it's about. I find myself in this position literally all the time, despite being a journalist. Um, and it's just like a nice crowdsourced place where you can find a little more info. And do Excellent. people opine in this forum? Oh, yeah. And things get weird and political and sadistic? Okay. So it's not just like, here's a link that will help inform you. I, I wouldn't say it gets like weird and sadistic. I think it gets weird in the way that Reddit is weird in the sense that people get really invested in their answers. And someone will spend seemingly hours crafting the perfect 
cohesive reply to your question. And that is weird, but beautiful. Um, that was at least my experience with uh, the Area 51 stuff. Nice. Mike, what's your recommendation this week? Oh, okay. My recommendation is a Netflix series. Uh, it is a half-hour comedy series, a Netflix original. Um, it is a Japanese television show, live-action show. It is called Kantaro, the Sweet Tooth Salaryman. Um, this is a surreal comedy about a guy who is addicted to sweets, traditional Japanese sweets. So he is a computer programmer and he's in an office all day and he just can't handle it because he can't have his sweets. So he changes his job to be a salesman who goes from store to store because that enables him to walk the streets of Tokyo and visit all of the best traditional sweet shops in Tokyo. So he goes to real places, and I don't know if there's like some sort of you know marketing tie-in with the places that are featured on the show, but he goes to real restaurants, and the actor sits in the chair and orders a sweet. And as he orders this traditional sweet, he gives you like over voiceover, internal monologue, all of the historical and like cultural significance of the thing he's about to eat. This is like the first 15 minutes of the show. And then like the last seven minutes of the show is him eating the sweet. And when he eats it, he goes into like fantasy world. It's sort of a combination of like a really strong psychedelic trip and a prolonged orgasm because he like moans and his eyes roll back in his head and he starts gasping. And then you go into his head and he's like in a world where there is like mochi and cherries and syrup flying around and he's interacting with him. There's one where he eats like a melon shaved ice and then he gets married to a woman with a melon head in this park. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Anyway, really, really great for late night viewing. Uh, Kantaro, the sweet tooth salary man. Mike, I, I need to ask you a question. Yes. How stoned are you when you're watching this? Um, I'm exactly no comment stoned. <laughs> cool. It's a fantastic show. You've got to see it. It's also just like, even okay, even if you can't stomach like 23 minutes of subtitled guy in a suit, like talking about his, the history of like some crazy dish you've never heard of, just go on YouTube and watch the clips because the clips are like all of his weird trips. It's just amazing. It's so well done. It's really funny. It's based on a manga also, which I'm told is like mm -hmm. very popular in, in Japan. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's it good. Sounds really fun. It sounds Kantaro. really trippy. Yeah. The fact that it's well done is yeah. what's selling me on this. It's, it sounds it's, like it's well produced. Oh, it's deeply weird. Yeah. It's deeply That's weird. That's so great. It's we, a lot of fun to watch. We have to watch that just to see how closely your description matches the actual footage. All right. I'm I'm I would like to know how I fare on that. I, I would like all of our listeners to do that and then tweet yes. at you. Yes. Tweet at me. Contar sweet to the yes. Yes. Let us know if you're watching it stoned or not too. <laughs> Might make a difference. Lauren, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is a book that I read over vacation called My Year of Rest and Relaxation by yes. Otessa Mushbeg. I hope I um, did not just butcher her last name. I apologize if I did. Ariel, you may have recommended this before on the podcast. Is that possible? I did. Or, I read this okay. book right around the time of CES. I needed something relaxing to read <laughs> during that very trying time. And I read it in like one sitting. Yes, I read it probably in two or three days. And thank you for the recommendation because I now have read it and also recommend it. And when you hear a book 
You hear about a book titled My Year of Rest and Relaxation. You think it is going to be something very different from what it ultimately is. Uh, just as a refresher, in case you weren't listening to the podcast back when Ariel recommended it, it is a book, a uh, fiction book about a young woman just uh, recently graduated from Columbia. She's working at an art gallery. She is um, she's in her early 20s, living in New York City. And she is incredibly depressed. And she's uh, likely depressed from some trauma that she has gone through in her family life, but also just feeling this general sense of worthlessness and, and futility and what's the point of everything. Uh, so she decides to check out of the world um, by basically finding a shrink that will just take out her prescription pad at you know the smallest trigger and write her a series of pharmaceutical prescriptions for her to um, dull her senses and just check out. And she that's what she does. She's determined to basically do nothing and sleep for a year in her apartment. Um, and this plan gets more and more aggressive as time goes on. She has very little interaction with the outside world with the exception of one friend and um, a really shitty boyfriend. If you'd even call him a boyfriend, he's kind of less than that. And um, for a while when she's <laughs> when she's like managing to hold down a job, she's interacting with coworkers for a while, but that doesn't last for very long. And uh, the thing is, is that it sounds like uh, maybe I'm probably just doing it. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but I think it speaks a lot to, first of all, these sentiments of feeling overwhelmed and wanting to check out and, and like maybe indulging that fantasy a little bit of doing it. But it's actually a very deeply dark novel. Mm-hmm. It's also set in the days before 9-11. Mm-hmm. So I think that we have entered this phase right now in some in some of our media where enough time has passed between uh, September 11th, 2001, and now we're starting to have this new kind of um, look at what the days before 9-11 were actually like. You know, the consumer internet obviously existed, but like we weren't as immersed in it. We weren't as immersed in social media applications. Our human to human interactions were like fundamentally different. So much was actually different. I mean, the economy was different, obviously, but there was like so much that was different in our modern society. Um, and and like this is an interesting glimpse at that. And it all sort of culminates in 9-11. And it's it's sad, actually. But it's a it's a very good book, and I highly recommend it. She's a, she's a just like a very good writer. She's very. I mean, I'm not doing it justice. I'm like she's mm. very good, um, yeah. but she is. I think she's a rising star. Really, it's like, like quite a, good. A ton of subtext in that book too. Yeah, I think it's going to be on all of the best books of the year list. Or what, did it come out last year? Mm-hmm. It did. And was it on all of the best? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Have you been like resting and relaxing for a year? Yeah. Uh, I've been, I've been taking, you just miss it? Been, I've been taking a lot of Ambien. Oh, <laughs> I've been sleep reading. Well, welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, my Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Moshveg. Yes. That's my recommendation. Excellent. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's show. Uh, we will be back next week with more news. And if you enjoyed this episode, or even if you have any other feedback other than pure joy, uh, leave us a review wherever you review podcasts, whether that be on Google's platform or Apple's platform, um, please, we would love to hear what you think of what we do. Uh, you can find us all on the brand new twitter.com. Lauren, where can the people find you? I'm at Lauren Good with an E. And Ariel? I am at Pardesoteric. And I am at Snackfight. And you can talk to all of us at Gadget Lab, which is the handle that we all use as our primary handle because we love hearing from you. So please tweet at us. And thank you very much.